The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, Today we're continuing our study through this fourth gospel, and we're beginning with chapter 11, which is a very familiar story, I think. It's the account of our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is actually the last and most monumental public miracle that Yeshua did. The purpose of this miracle is given to us in verse 4. It says, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is the seventh sign that Lazarus records in the Gospel. The other six were turning the water to wine. That was the first. These are are signs that the seven that he focuses on. And the purpose of these signs is that you may know that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and you may believe in Him. That's the purpose of these signs. So he turned water into wine. uh, Healing the nobleman's son. Restoring the impotent man. Multiplying the loaves and the fish walking on water, giving sight to the blind man, and now today, number seven, is uh, giving life to the dead. Because this miracle is not mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, liberal critics have argued that it's not genuine. Now, I think the word liberal says it also. I won't even comment on that. We'll just go on from there, okay? Lazarus often puts together the sign... And then the theological discourse explaining the meaning of the sign. Well, here, the discourse and the unfolding narrative of the sign are intertwined throughout verses 1-44. through Just kind of mixes them all together. And the key theological phrase of the passage is in verse 25 where Yeshua says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, the rest of the passage is commentary, it's proof, and it's illustration of Yeshua being the life. Now, in the first ten chapters of this Gospel, Lazarus has made repeated connections between Yeshua and life. I counted 19 of them. Maybe you can find more, but I know there's at least 19. He starts with 1.4 and it says, In Him was life. And ending in 10.28 where he says, I give them eternal life. This is all about the life that Yeshua provides. And in this chapter, he's going to demonstrate it. Now, in chapter 10... Yeshua declared to the right the religious authorities of his day that he came to fulfill the promises of the good shepherd made throughout the Tanakh. He has come as Yahweh himself to shepherd his people. He has come to lead the sheep, those who hear his voice, out of the enclosure of old covenant Judaism and into the new covenant established in his blood. Now, the emphasis on life is strong in chapter 10. 10.10 10 states this, The thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then in verses 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So he says, My sheep hear my voice. And then you get to chapter 11, and he speaks to Lazarus, who hears his voice, and comes from the dead. So, if you remember back to chapter 5, twice, 
verse 25 and verse 27 through 28, Yeshua states that those who are dead or in the tombs will hear His voice. And those who hear His voice will come to life. So the Lazarus narrative that we're going to look at here fleshes out a number of statements that Yeshua has already made, primarily focusing on the fact that Yeshua is the life. This chapter about resurrection demonstrates that. Now, I think we can break this chapter down this way. All right, Verses 1-16, through 16, which we're going to look at this morning, deal with the setting and the background. All right, so some important stuff in here, but we got to deal with it. All right, verses 17 to 33 focus on Yeshua's dialogue with Martha and Mary, and then verses 34 to 44 describe the trip to the tomb and the raising of Lazarus. So let's look at this first section this morning. So now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now here we got a certain man whose name is Lazarus. This is the first time we are introduced to Lazarus in this book. Most view him simply as a man who Yeshua raised from the dead, but we know him as the author of this gospel. And we'll talk about that more in a minute here, because these verses here in the beginning of this chapter are pretty critical to that view. So here we're introduced to Lazarus, who is the brother of Mary and Martha. And this is the first time we hear about that in the New Testament. Neither he nor his sisters have been mentioned previously in this fourth gospel. Mary and Martha appear in Luke chapter 10, but there's no mention in that chapter about Lazarus. The name Lazarus is known from archaeology and Josephus as a common name in first century Palestine. Lazarus' name is literally Lazar, the shortened Greek form of Eleazar, which means God helps. All right, then we have Mary. Mary is a very popular name. It's a variation of Miriam, Moses' sister. Mary was the most common name in Judea in this period. And that's why in verse 2 he clarifies which Mary he's talking about. And he'll do that when we get to verse 2. We'll see that in a minute. Martha. We all know Martha, right? A hard-working one. You can count on Martha to put some food out for you, all right? She's the one who invites Yeshua into her house to stay. She cooks dinner for him. You know, his disciples, some, sometime during their lifetime, they have been to her house. All right? The first two years of ministry, in that first two years, they were there. According to Luke chapter 10, that's when Mary and Martha, you know, have that little dispute about, hey, get her in here helping me. Oh, she's, she's doing fine. But Lazarus is not mentioned in that council. It just talks about Mary and Martha. And, you know, you got to wonder why this guy just all of a sudden shows up here in chapter 11. Well, interestingly, the names of all three members of this family, Mary, which is Miriam, Martha, which is Martha, and Lazarus, were found in 1973 in ossuary inscriptions near the town of Bethany on the Mount of Olives, a village known by its Arabic name, El Azariah, the name derived from... uh, Yeshua's dear friend Lazarus. So they found all these names. Now, they're very common names during that period. So it's possible that these bone boxes they found, you know, just are other people, but it's in their village and all three of the names are there. So you just got to think, well, that just seems like it goes along with his story, right? These are the people who believed in him. Now, we see in this verse that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all lived in a village of Bethany. Now, this Bethany which is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem, along the road to Jericho, 
has not been mentioned in this Gospel so far. Alright? And we need to distinguish between the Bethany that's mentioned in 128 and alluded to in 1040 and 42. And that's why Lazarus characterizes it as a village of Mary and her sister Martha. He's distinguishing it from other villages. All right? And scholars debate the Hebrew meaning of the name Bethany. Some scholars maintain that it means you know, place or house. That's bet, house. House of grace. Other scholars say it means house of affliction. A little bit different there to me. Of course, I guess if you're in affliction, you definitely need grace. So I don't, I don't know. But, you know, they're arguing about that. So. But we know where this place is, all right? And we know who's there. Now, verse 2 says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So you go, oh, that Mary. You know, he's talking about Mary. Now we know which Mary he was talking about. Do you remember this story from earlier in our study? About Mary anointing the Lord? No, you don't. Because we haven't got to it yet. It's not till chapter 12. <clears throat> yeah, see, we're all familiar with the story, so we're like, oh yeah, I know that. Well, we hadn't got to that yet. That's in chapter 12. So why is he mentioning something that's in chapter 12? I think it's because, listen, he assumes his readers know this story, just like you know the story. And you're all going, yeah, we, I remember when we did that. No, we didn't do it. But they remember it because this is the last Gospel written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been out for a while, and he just assumes his readers are familiar with this story. He'll get to it later, but he, is, he assumes they're familiar, so he just mentions that and then goes on. In verse 3, he says, So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now verse 1 and 2 say that Lazarus was ill. And here Mary and Martha send word to Yeshua that, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now what's interesting here, he's not even named. Hey, the person you love is ill. I was thinking this morning, if someone was writing to Glenn, and they said, who whom you love is ill, he wouldn't have a clue who they're talking about because he loves everybody. All right? <laughs> but it, isn't it interesting that, you know, they, the person you love, he knows who they're talking about. I think this indicates that the Lord was really close with this family. Alright? Really close with this family. So this is the third time we're told that Lazarus was ill. Keep that in mind. This guy who the Lord loves is ill. Now the word love here is not agapao, which is used of divine love. It's the word phileo, brotherly love, brotherly affection. City of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. <laughs> now, when they say Lord here, it's just the Greek word kurios. It's a common Greek greeting, sir, they're saying. It's not like they're you know, recognizing his deity in this text or anything. They're just saying, sir. And the sister's message to Yeshua is, he whom you love is ill. That's it. They don't say, we really need you to come here right now. He's sick. You've got to come and heal him. You've got to fix this situation. They don't say anything. They just say, hey, we want you to know the one who you love is ill. Now, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, which I've told you about before, this is, I recommend this highly. I got it on my phone. It is an excellent background commentary on many things that you wouldn't have a clue about if you really didn't dig into this. This is not maybe that great a understanding, but they have some good stuff in here. It says, It was custom for the people to visit the sick when informed of their sickness. The sisters have special reason for Yeshua to come, however, because He's a healer. And that makes sense. They know he's a healer, so they want him to come. 
So maybe they felt all they needed to do was let him know that Lazarus is sick and he'd come and heal him and, and that would be the end of it. But that's all they do. They just say, hey, he whom you love is sick. Now here's what I want to know. How did they know where Yeshua was? Yeah, I, I thought about this and I thought, well, obviously they're checking his, his Facebook updates. You know? And, and they saw the post that says, you know, Yeshua put a post checked into Perea. And they're like, oh, that's, we know where he's at. You know, our culture is so different, okay, from back then. Now, I assume he was close to them, so maybe when he left, he told them, listen, I'm going over to Perea. I'm going to go minister there for a while. These authorities here are trying to kill me. I got to get away. Need some downtime. Get away from here. I'm going to go over and minister to those people. So that's all I can think of. But somehow they knew where he was at. Now, something important that I want you to see from this verse is that sickness in the life of a believer is by no means incompatible with the Lord's love for us. He whom you love is ill. That's important, people. Because today, we got a whole culture telling us, if something's wrong, you're sick. If you're not doing well financially, you got a problem with God. Alright? And despite what those teach who preach that every believer should be healthy and wealthy, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Alright? These false teachers flaunt their wealth, which they have gained from the gullible who contribute to their bank accounts. You know, with all this hoopla with the hurricane stuff and you know Joel Olstein was taking a lot of heat you know because he wouldn't let people in the church um, his house is incredible I think they said it was eighteen thousand eighteen million dollars to him and his wife now everybody needs that you know so I was going to talk to you all about that um, <laughs> <laughs> Here's the problem, man. They're telling these people, you just need to give. And they call it seed faith. You know, give your money and God will bless you. And the people look at them and they say, it's working for them. They're at the top of the pyramid scheme. It works for the people at the top. It doesn't work for those down lower. All right? And here's the saddest thing. Here's the thing that makes me the angriest about this. When the health, wealth stuff doesn't work for the people, you know, you're still sick and... Well, I'm giving and I'm trusting the Lord. They say, well, it's really your lack of faith. You are not trusting God. You know, and it's really hard to imagine a more heartless and cruel doctrine than to tell people that are sick, the reason you're sick is, you know, you just have, don't have enough faith to get well. You know, I read a book a long time ago uh, by a physician. I think it was called A Physician in Search of a Miracle. He followed Catherine Coleman around. You know, and she was a healer at the time a while back, and he interviewed all these people that were healed. And one of the saddest things he discovered is a bunch of them committed suicide afterwards. Because they, they had this rush of adrenaline, and they got, they got up out of their wheelchair, and they walked a few steps. Well, an hour later, they're back in their wheelchair. And so they're just feeling, God has rejected me. And so they committed suicide. And that's a doctrine that perpetuates that, okay? That God doesn't want His people sick. He doesn't want His people, you know, poor. Somebody should have told Paul that. He was off base, obviously. Well, on the basis of this verse, some scholars and me, I'm going to 
not putting myself in with the scholars, but me, the scholars and I, all right, believe that the author of this gospel was Lazarus. Now you say, well, how do you come up with that? Well, let me show you. Tradition says that John wrote the fourth gospel, although there's some difference of opinion as to which John. There really is. It's not all in agreement that it's the Apostle John. And most people believe that without question, because <laughs> that's what most people do. They hear something, they just buy into it, all right? After all, if you just turn to your Bible, it says there, the Gospel according to John, right? So that ends it. Well, you know, that wasn't actually in the text anywhere. That's just somebody helping us out so you'll know who this book's from, all right? Uh, so when I go to chapter 21 and I read that the writer of this Gospel was the disciple whom Yeshua loved, I automatically assume the disciple whom Yeshua loved is who? John. Because that's what it says, and that's what most people think. Well, let's forget tradition for a moment and just look at the Scripture. And this is hard to do sometimes because we're so bound by tradition that it blocks us from even seeing what the Bible says. And I remember years and years ago, a man wrote me because I said the disciple whom Yeshua loved was John. And someone wrote me and they said, how do you get that? And I'm like, that's obvious, everybody believes that. <laughs> and he challenged me with a few Scriptures and I started digging. I'm scratching my head thinking, oh my word, how have I never seen this before? Tradition can really blind us to things. But it's really not difficult because we're told who wrote this book. Right here, John 21, 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Yeshua loved, following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who, who, <laughs> Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? All right, here the writer mentions the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And then he states that this is the disciple who wrote the letter in verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So the antecedent of this in verse 24 is the disciple whom Yeshua loved in verse 20. So we know who wrote this gospel, and no one really argues that point, all right? It was the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Now all we have to do is figure out who that was. Does the Bible say anywhere that John wrote this gospel or that John was the disciple? It doesn't say that. We assume it. It doesn't say it. Does the Bible explicitly name anyone who was loved by Yeshua? Yes. But listen, and listen to this. and Check this. Sorry. Don't, I'm at, don't believe anything I say. Check it out. All right? There's actually only one man specifically named in all the Bible, all the New Testament, because we're talking about Yeshua, <laughs> that says Yeshua loved. Only one person brought out by name, and that is Lazarus. Now, as we saw in verse 3, Lazarus' sisters refer to him as the man whom Yeshua loved. That tells us something very important about Lazarus. But that's his sister's opinion. You know, sisters can be biased, right? So, even more revealing is what the Spirit tells us through the text. Verse 5 says, Yeshua loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So here it says, Yeshua loved Lazarus. So Lazarus' sister said Yeshua loved him. The text says Yeshua loved Lazarus. And even the Jews said that Yeshua loved Lazarus. So the Jews said, see how... He loved him. So it seems to me that the Spirit of God is going to great lengths in John 11 to make it known that Yeshua loved Lazarus. 
Lazarus is the only man named in the Bible that is specifically identified as being loved by Yeshua. Does that surprise you? Before Pentecost, only 15 verses mention Yeshua's love. Three of these verses reference Yeshua's love for Lazarus. Five others refer to the disciple whom Yeshua loved. The Bible only has only seven more verses prior to Pentecost that overtly mention Yeshua's love, and not one of those verses names anyone. And only Mark 10.21 refers to a single individual, but he's not named. All right? So you go through the Bible in the New Testament, you're looking for who is it, the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Well, there's only one person named. All right? Because of this love, I think it should be obvious that Yeshua and Lazarus have known each other for a while. They must have spent some time together. But the first time we hear about Lazarus is John 11. That's the first time we hear him by name anyway. I think we see Lazarus very early in this Gospel. I believe that he is a disciple of John the Baptist. In verses 35-37 through of chapter 1, we have two of John's disciples leaving him to follow Yeshua. Who are the two? Well, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here, one of the disciples is Andrew, the other one's not named. Now that would be consistent with the author's practice of not naming himself. And it's, I think it's safe to assume that when the writer makes any reference to another unnamed disciple, he has in mind the one particular disciple whom Yeshua loved. It's hard to believe that there's, the writer has a number of different people he's trying to you know, keep anonymous. No, it's the one disciple. All right? Now, I want you to notice something that I think is very significant. We first meet Lazarus in John 11. Never hear of him before. And then John 12 is the last time we hear of Lazarus. After chapter 12, this celebrity, and he was a celebrity, we'll see that after Yeshua raises him from the dead, he just disappears. This good friend of Yeshua, this man whom Yeshua loved and raised from the dead, suddenly disappeared. Notice where we see him last. Chapter 12, 1 and 2. Six days before Passover, Yeshua therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Yeshua had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, good old Martha, she's always in there taking care of things. She served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. So the last time we see Lazarus' name, he's reclining at the table with Yeshua. Then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. And what's really interesting is right after Lazarus disappears, his name is never heard of again, someone else appears that we never heard of before. And that is in verse 23. One of the disciples whom Yeshua loved was reclining at the table at Yeshua's side. So this is the last time we see Lazarus. He's reclining at the table with Yeshua. The first time we see the disciple whom Yeshua loved, he's reclining at the table with Yeshua. The only man named in the Bible as being loved by Yeshua abruptly vanishes from the Gospel. And the only disciple singled out as being loved by Yeshua, the disciple whom Yeshua loved, appears. Obviously, this is Lazarus. I mean, it seems so clear from the text, but we miss it because we started reading this book and it says the Gospel according to John. So we assume that John is the disciple. But the inspired text, I think, very clearly tells us it is Lazarus. Now, in our first message on the Gospel, we dealt with authorship, 
And basically the whole message is about this, and I give a lot more proof, uh, go into more detail on it. So if you want more detail on that, I'd go there. But we had to touch on these verses because this is, these verses are important for this whole idea because this is where you get the, the clear indication that Yeshua loves Lazarus. All right, so look at verse 4. But when Yeshua heard, it said, this illness, was not li- this illness shall not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, he says, this illness does not lead to death. Now, the Greek construction here is a translation, something like, this sickness is not to end in death. Now, he's not saying he's not going to die. All right, that's not what he's saying. He said, this is not going to be the ultimate end of this. All right, the ultimate end of this is the glory of God. He's going to die, but that's not the ultimate end, because he's not going to stay dead. The end of this sickness will be, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we're told, if you remember in, in 9.3, remember the blind man, the man born blind? that His purpose in being born blind wasn't because he sinned or hurt his parents. It was that the works of God might be revealed in him. Well, here we're told that Lazarus' illness is for God's glory. So it should be obvious that sometimes believers are sick for the glory of God. Now, there's a double meaning here concerning death and glorification. Yeshua will be glorified by the miracle of resurrecting Lazarus. All right? But it's not just the fact that, wow, look what he did. He must be the Son of God. That's part of it. But this miracle is going to bring about Yeshua's death, which is going to bring about his resurrection and his glorification. So there's a double meaning. Yeah, he's going to be glorified when that happens. But he's going to, because he's going to be displayed as the Son of God. But the ultimate manifestation is when he he rises from the dead and is glorified. Yeshua comes through his death, he's resurrected, he goes into the ascension. That's all part of him being glorified. So the you know the double meaning is there. Now, verse 5 he says, Now Yeshua loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In verse 3, the sister says that Yeshua loved Lazarus. Here we are told that Yeshua loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But this time the word changes. This is agapao, which is used of divine love. Okay? And then we see in verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that make sense? You know, people read this and say, if he really loved Martha, and if he really loved Mary, why would he wait several more days before going to see him? I mean, let's say you had the power to heal somebody. And you heard somebody you loved was sick. And you could heal. Would you wait around? Or would you get there quickly? So they're like, what? What's going on here? You know, I think it's really common in difficult trials that our emotions flood us with questions like, if God really loves me, and God is all-powerful, why am I going through this terrible trial? You ever been there? Well, you're not alone if you've been there. I know a great man, a really great man. Yeshua said he was a great man. John the Baptist? All right, the man who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin of the world. He got put in prison. And what happened when he was sitting in prison? He said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In other words, if you're the Messiah, and I'm your messenger, why am I in jail? If even a great man like John had doubts in times of trial, 
It's important to understand that can happen to any of us. You know, we go through a situation because we attribute the love of God to everything happening the way we want it to happen. See, if God loves us, He gives us everything we want, right? And again, we're back to the health, wealth, gospel. It's all about you. But it's not about you. It's about God. What's interesting here is that when you translate the Greek text literally, it reads like this. Now, Yeshua loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. (laughs) So listen, this text is saying it was because of, not despite his love, that he waited. He loved him, so he waited. And, And I guess the question here and the problem with us is, What does it mean to be loved by God? What does that mean? And we think it means giving us what we want. Making sure we have everything to make us happy. But really, love means giving us what we need. What we need the most. And what we need the most is not physical healing, is not financial prosperity. What we need most is to experience and walk in the glory of God. We need to know God. And God brings all kinds of things into our life to get our attention. To help us to realize that we need Him. Because let you know, be honest, in this life it's so easy to just go through life and you almost forget about God sometimes. Especially when things are going well. Now usually when things are not going well, we don't forget Him because we're saying, Lord, uh, something's wrong here. Your servant, remember, I love you, and what's going on? How come everything's not going the way I want it to? This verse teaches he loved Lazarus. Lazarus was sick. He let him be sick. He let him die. So back to the health wealth heresy. Those who teach that sickness in life of a believer is a sure evidence of the Lord's displeasure ought to read the Bible. They ought to read these verses. Okay? Even those who were the closest friends of Christ get sick and die. The statement Yeshua loved in verse 5 is used of no one in the New Testament except for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And the only people specifically said to be loved by Him and Lazarus gets sick and dies. And you know what? What about Mary and Martha? you think they were troubled over this? They said, Lord, the one you love is sick. They expected Him to come. We'll see that later in the text. They said, Lord, if you'd have been here, He wouldn't have died. Why weren't you here? They were hurting. The Lord loved them. And He knew they're going through the pain of losing a loved one. And He let them go through that pain. It's just so incompetent of those who want to estimate God's love for us by temporal conditions. And we fall into Listen, I swear every one of us have been in some way contaminated by the health, wealth, gospel. We just buy into it. We would say, ah, that's, that's heresy. I deny that. But let something happen to you and right away you're like, God, shouldn't this not be happening to me? These verses are strong. Who you love is sick. And he's going to die. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
Oh, Lazarus is sick. Okay, let's hang around and do some more ministry here. The question we have to ask here, where was the place where he was? Where was he? Well, we saw in John 10.40 that Yeshua had gone from Jerusalem across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. All right, this is where he started his ministry. But when we read in 128, we find this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So there are two places that are called Bethany. The trouble is that there's no known Bethany on the east bank. So some commentators have looked around. They see a place called Bethabara. It's a one day's journey from Bethany, and they assume, well, that's the place he's talking about. Okay. However, there's a better justification for assuming that where Yeshua stayed, where he was ministering when they sent for him, was 93 miles away in a region called Bethania. Now, which is Aramaic, it paraphrases, can almost be spelled exactly the same as Bethany. And so the journey from there would have taken four days. Once he got message, it would have taken him four days to get to Bethany. Now, from Jewish sources, it's well known that a day's journey for a healthy person was considered, how many miles do you think a healthy person could walk? Do what? And yeah, I see 25, 25, I got 25. Huh? 25 to 28. Okay? 25 to 28 a day. Now remember, they're not walking on sidewalks. You know, they're climbing mountains. I mean, it's, you know, it's an arduous task, okay? So the 93 miles that separate Bethany near Jerusalem from where he was would require four days journey. So we got this idea that it took him a day to get there. No, I really think it was a four days journey. This is important because it helps us work out the timing. A messenger is sent from Bethany. Lazarus is seriously ill. He arrives four days later and he tells Yeshua. At that time, it seems like Lazarus is still alive. All right? However, two days later, Yeshua supernaturally knows that Lazarus has died. And so Yeshua and the disciples set off on their four-day journey, arriving in Bethany to be told that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. So why wait until he's dead for four days? Is there some reason he's doing that? Well, burial in those in that time, in that land, was usually really quick. You died, you got in the ground, okay? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? What did happen? As soon as they died, get them out and bury them, all right? Get rid of them, all right? Well, four days in Jewish belief was significant because there's a great deal of tradition that the soul would hover around the body for three days. You know, didn't want to leave, just in case, okay? In case it comes back to life. But they say the fourth day, you know, after decomposition had started, that the soul's like, ooh, they're getting ugly, I don't want to name. And they would leave. All right, so that was kind of their belief. That was Jewish thought. Rabbi Akiba said this, for three days after death, the soul hovers over the body, intending to reenter it. But as soon as it sees its appearance change, it departs. Okay, so that's Jewish belief. All right, so four days, in other words, we're making sure... He's good and dead. When I raise him from the dead, there's not going to be any question like, oh, he was just sick. No, the soul was gone. And remember when ha- what happens when he gets to the grave and he says, roll away the stone? What'd she say? Oh, Lord, he stinketh. And all right, decomposition has taken place. Lord, we don't want to open that grave. 
All right, we'll, we'll get to all that. <laughs> Verse 7, it says, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Why did he say Judea when Lazarus is in Bethany? Because Bethany and Judea were virtually so close, just two miles apart, so they just considered them the same place, all right? Now, why did Yeshua and his disciples withdraw from Judea in the first place and go to Perea? Because they were trying to kill him, right? So let's, it's not time to die yet. You remember the Feast of Dedication? He got them all stirred up because he said he was God and they didn't like that, so they tried to kill him. So they leave. Well, here Yeshua says, let us go, right? Look at the disciples, what they say. Are you going again? Yeshua says, let us, and they say, are you? In other words, I'm not going. All right? The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. I mean, they wanted to kill you when you're there. Do you want to go back? Are you going? We're not going. Are you going? I, they didn't want, I mean, come on. Picture yourself in this situation. Rabbi, they're going to kill you. If they kill you, uh, we're probably next in line. I'm not really interested in going back there. All right? So let, and, and, you know, when you understand this, this text gets funny almost at times, you know, because they're like, we're not going back there. So he says in 9 and 10, Yeshua answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, we understand that. You know, the light's out. You can see where you're going. You don't stumble. You got all that stuff. But he's talking more than a physical reference here. All right? He's giving us a theological reference. Remember what he said in 8.12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He's the light. So long as the disciples follow him, they're not going to stumble in the darkness. They're not going to be in danger. The darkness will not come until the appointed hour of darkness that has been determined by God the Father for the Son's sacrificial death. Now, verse 10 assumes that Yeshua is the light. Thus, when Yeshua is present, there's no darkness. You don't stumble. This means, guys, we can go there safely. Until it's the hour, nothing's going to happen to us. We're in the light. Now listen, here's what's interesting. The disciples are going to stumble when the hour of darkness comes. See, when he's killed, what happens to the disciples? They just scatter. There's only one person left, at, one male left at that cross. The women are all there because they're not afraid, but there's only one male left at the cross. And that's Lazarus. You say, wonder why he's the only one there. Because <laughs> he's already been dead and come out of the grave, so he's like, I'm not afraid of anybody because this guy raises the dead, all right? He had a handle, so he's there. You know, he's not afraid. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, this tells us Lazarus was friends with not just Yeshua. They probably all stayed at his house. It was on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, even though in Hebrew and Greek, to sleep is a euphemism for somebody's death. And we understand that, right? I mean, Paul used it that way in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So some are still alive, some have fallen asleep. They died. I don't think the disciples wanted to get Yeshua's meaning here. I don't think they wanted to see that. Because notice what they say next. Well, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he falls asleep, he'll recover. Right? They're saying, good, he'll be all right. We don't have to go there. Don't even worry about it. Let's just go on with our business. I mean, these guys are trying to get out of going there. Now, the Greek word translated recover here is sozo. Anybody know what that means? Save. 
That's interesting that he uses that here. Because when we see, we see the word saved, we only think of spiritual salvation, deliverance you know, from damnation. But sozo is used in a wide range of meanings. It means to be rescued from danger, to be delivered. It's often used in the New Testament of being healed. One of the earlier copies of the New Testament contains the word raised here instead of recovered, which I thought was pretty interesting. If he's falling asleep, he'll be raised. I'm like, well, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know if it's actual text. Verse 13 and 14 says, Now, now Yeshua had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Yeshua told them plainly, Guys, Lazarus has died. Okay? You guys are not getting this, so let me explain it to you. All right? And it's not Lazarus is dead, it's has died. He's just died. All right? Now, the idea that people would awake from sleep or come out of death was revealed in the Tanakh. We see it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. But it wasn't the common perception of death. All right? Normally, when people thought of death, they thought, you're dead, that's it. All right? Thus, the disciples' confusion about the Lord going to awaken him, somewhat understandable. What? You're going to get him? He's dead. If they'd been paying attention, though, to the Lord in chapter 5, they should have known he could raise the dead because he talked about that in chapter 5. All right? So verse 15, he says, For your sakes, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Yeshua tells his disciples here, his, he's glad for their sakes that Lazarus died. What does that mean? Well, the significance of the death of their friend Lazarus includes the strengthening of the disciples' faith the miracle of resurrection. I mean, when you see a man who's dead, and you open that grave and it stinks, and all of a sudden this guy comes out, it's like, oh, this is serious, okay? They'd seen him raise the dead before, though. Alright? Remember the widow's son, Nain? Stop. Well, they're on the way to bury him. Lazarus, four days, okay? This verse has to be understood in light of verse 4. This event has the glory of God as its goal. Yeshua is revealing the glory of God is connected with the disciples believing. This is the same theme and connection that was made with the first sign when He turned the water into wine. The death of Lazarus provides an opportunity for the faith of the disciples to be built up. they got some rough times ahead of them and they need this sign. They need to remember this. He says, so that you may believe. Now, He's not saying that they need to come to faith in Him. They have trusted in Him. But their faith was to grow. He wanted the more they understood, the more they saw His power, the more they'd come to trust Him. Believers, let's apply this to ourselves. Not only was their faith constantly growing, our faith should be constantly growing. I mean, the more we walk in fellowship with the Lord, and by that, I mean the more time we spend in the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So the more time we spend with our Lord, the more we grow in confidence because we see these miracles through the Word of God. We see our Lord. We understand who He is. We understand about trials. We understand that you know, persecution is not because He doesn't love us, because He does love us. And we learn these things. And just like this miracle was to strengthen their faith, everyday life and trials strengthens our faith. But it only does that, I think, when we're in fellowship with the Lord. I think often trials can turn us away because we get bitter because things aren't going the way we want them to go. 
All right, verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with them. They don't mean die with Lazarus. They mean die with Yeshua. Okay? Now Thomas was also known as the twin. Now the Greek word for twin is Didymus. And he was often used as a proper name in the Greek culture. In all the lists of the twelve apostles, he's always called Thomas. He's never called Didymus. Lazarus, however, who mentions Thomas more than any other gospel writer, always identifies him as Thomas called Didymus, the twin. Now, when you think of Thomas, what do you think of? Shame on us. Poor Thomas. We think of this 20, verse 24 and 25. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, Didymus, was not with them when Yeshua came. See, Yeshua showed himself to all of them. Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, guys, unless I see his hand and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. What? He said, you guys are crazy to believe that. That he's come back from that. I will never believe that. And because of what we see in chapter 20, the church has come to know him as Doubting Thomas. You know, we're good at focusing on the negative. Aren't we? Thomas doesn't reflect doubt in the text we're looking at, does he? Look, let's us go. We'll die with him. That, that, this is brave. All right, This is an expression of faith. He's saying, let's go, we'll die with them, it's all right. And then in Scripture, Thomas gives us probably the highest expression of faith found in the New Testament. He looks at Yeshua and he says, my Lord and my God. I think we should all hope that our lives will be judged by our acts of faith and not our failures. But see, I, it's sad that we do focus on that. Oh, someone messes up, we remember that. All the other stuff they did, we don't, you know, we don't so much remember all that stuff, but it's easy to remember the failures. Let's not think of him as doubting Thomas, okay? He had a crisis of faith, no doubt. He was probably very upset. But here he's like, let's go, we'll die with him. And then later he meets the Lord and he says, my Lord and my God. Let's look at him as trusting Thomas. Instead of doubting Thomas. <laughs> What's unusual here is that Peter is usually the spokesman for the disciples. But here we see Thomas speaking up. That's unusual. What's going on here? Well, someone speculated that Peter wasn't present at the time. And there's more to that, and we'll look at that a little later. So, all right, these first 16 verses, they deal with the setting and the background. So we're seeing what's going on. We're trying to, you know, he's introducing us to the different players in this scene. And you've got to be connected with this. You've got to think of Mary. You've got to think of Martha. You've got to think of the pain in their life. Their brother's dead. They put him in the grave. To them, it is over. So he's setting all this up as background. Trying to get the disciples. Let's go back there. The disciples are like, we don't want to go back there. And as we get through the rest of this text, you know, the next couple of weeks, we'll see one of the greatest miracles in Scripture. And a miracle that has a purpose. He's doing this so you will see He gives life to the dead. Because guess what? Every one of us at one time were dead. And the only way we come to know Him is He gives us life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the privilege, Lord, to look at this text. Father, just a simple narrative. 
We've been introduced to some of the players. I see ourselves, Lord, in this text. Father, I pray that we would be like Thomas. We would be a man of faith, willing to go, to die, to do whatever to serve our Lord. I thank you for Thomas. I thank you for his courage. I pray you'd help us, Lord, not to be the kind of people who focus on the negative, but focus on the positive that we see in people, to be encouraging to them, to be supportive of them. Thank you for this text, Lord. Amen.